Uh, I've heard it said that uh, you shouldn't meet your heroes. And um, I think the reason that is, is you will probably be disappointed. Uh, I was thinking as I approached this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that maybe I shouldn't preach my favorite passage of Scripture. Uh, In the same way, I feel a a little bit of pressure uh, to do it justice for the effect that it's had on my life. Now, all of Scripture speaks and challenges and changes us, uh, but for whatever reason, God in His mercy uh, has seen fit in so far in my life to use the Sermon on the Mount to be one of the uh, passages of Scripture that has made the most traction, the most change, has been the most effective in my heart in understanding the gospel, who he is, and moving forward in my Christian walk. And so um, as I begin to preach this series, I think maybe I should have waited till my last sermon series before I retired for this to be it, but uh, we're not doing that. We're going to jump right in. Um, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount until Advent. And um, so as we start, here's what I want to ask. I want to ask this question. What do I hope as a pastor to accomplish through a sermon series like this. Well, um, I really want uh, to do, again, as I said, that do this passage justice because of what it's meant to me, but not so that I can hear you say, hey, great sermon, or hey, that was even better than the series on Kings, or because I want to write a book. None of those things. The reason I want to do this passage justice is because I want you to encounter it in the same way I have encountered it, and I want it to change your life. That's why I really preach any sermon series. Um, I want you to encounter this scripture, and as you hear Jesus, our Lord, Savior, and friend, kind of describe this delicate balance between himself and and the law and grace, I want you to, to look at, I want us all to look at our lives, see how we live, and realize I can't live that way any longer. I just can't. And so, um, listen, no big deal, your pastor's praying that, uh, your stuff gets all messed up. That's what I'm praying for, that your, your life gets ruined. That's what I hope uh, through this sermon series. Nobody's laughing. And uh, so, but kind of, yes. Uh, and as I say to, as Julie and I say to our children before they're going to do chores, I say, prepare your heart. Uh, prepare your heart. And, and the good news about my desires is it has nothing to do with how I preach it. You're going to encounter the Word of God through this series. You're going to encounter the Word of God through the, the sermons that we bring here on a regular basis. And my prayer is that it cuts you to the core. It's my prayer for this series. Um, so to start your ruination, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 5, 1 through 6. I'll be reading uh, from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So please follow along with me. Again, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 6. We're going to cover the first four Beatitudes in today's sermon. Beginning in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you saw fit to send Jesus, your Son, God the Son, in the flesh, and you saw fit to have him heal the crowds, heal the multitudes, but you also saw fit for him to sit with his disciples and teach them the very core of what the kingdom of heaven means. What does it mean to be with Jesus? 
So Father, I pray that you remove any distractions from me. Help me to move out of the way. May your gospel be proclaimed this morning. May the sermon from the greatest sermon giver of all time land on open hearts, fresh ears this morning. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you, for context, we're going to go back to Matthew 1 through 4 during Advent, but uh, what's happened so far is we've uh, seen the birth of Jesus. He's begun his ministry. He went through the temptation in the wilderness. And just before he goes up on the mountain to give the sermon, um, he is healing massive crowds. So Jesus is inundated with people who want what he has. And so far, that's been multiplying food and miracles and healing. And so Jesus uh, is uh, more than likely exhausted because he's been inundated with this large crowd. And so what does he do? He goes up on the mountain for some respite and his disciples come to him. And so we can learn from verses 1 and 2 where it says, seeing the crowds, you see the difference here, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so imagine it this way, when Jesus gave this sermon, it was as if he was drawing a circle around his disciples. This is for you. I'm teaching what, what is something about uh, your experience. As you follow me, as you are with me, this is an important teaching for you. And so it's the same for us. As, as we are disciples of Christ, this teaching is for us. And then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are called the Beatitudes. Uh, this is from the Latin word beatus. In case you think I'm really smart, I had to write that phonetically in my notes. So uh, beatus, which means blessed, Okay, which um, the word blessed, I think, has been misused, especially in our culture, right? Hashtag blessed, too blessed to be stressed, all these things. What does that even mean? I don't know. We generally use the word blessed as equal to happy, emotionally happy. Or we, we a lot of times as Americans, use the word blessed in regard to receiving material goods we didn't expect. Or I got a, I got a raise, I got a job promotion, I feel so blessed. God blessed me with a good tax return. These kinds of things. All right, so listen, blessed here is not emotionally happy. Blessed here is not the receiving of good material things. Blessed here uh, is, is not something that we pursue on its own. If you look at the way these uh, statements are phrased, blessedness is the result of pursuing something else. So they're not, it's not a direct reward, but to make it confusing, it is a reward. Listen to D.A. Carson. He says, the rewards of the blessedness, right, are the, at the level of spiritual experience and relationship with God rather than of material reward. So listen to this. Blessedness is a byproduct. Blessedness is a reward, but it's a reward for, for gaining something else completely. And what is that thing? So the meaning of the word, and this is just from uh, the theological dictionary of, of biblical words here, the term of congratulation of something already bestowed. So it's, a, it's like, hey, you're blessed. It's something you already have. It's of real substance. It's actually a real privilege. When you're in the kingdom and you are blessed, it's something that is real and tangible. You already have it. And so the, the blessedness here refers to a distinctive joy that is the result of being a follower of Christ. The distinctive joy that is a result of being a follower of Christ. That's what it is and getting a raise and getting a good tax return. That's not true. See if you're paying attention, all right? So what you're going to see in these formulaic sayings is blessedness is there. It's a given. It's a congratulatory thing. You already have it. 
And it's, you are blessed already because when you exhibit this attitude or behavior, this other thing is already true. This other thing is promised to you. See the formula there? You are already blessed when this happens because of this thing. That's the formula we're dealing with in the Beatitudes. And again, we're covering the first four in today's sermon. And so we see here in verse 3, our blessedness is a result of being in proximity to Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Let me break that down for you. So Jesus says in verse 3, is the first thing he says, disciples come, he sits down, they sit down, and he says to them this phrase to start his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a curious way to start a sermon. Um, he did not give an anecdote or a story, right? He just busts right into it. And, and uh, Jesus knew how to spark interest. And here's what's happening. Imagine you are a, a first century Jewish student. Uh, uh, you, you, are, you love God. You want to be near God. And you have now attached yourself as a disciple to this teacher named Jesus. You would have had a, a, a very clear understanding of kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, is, it means to be in proximity to the only source of everything good, and that is God. If you look through the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, what is blessedness? It's simply being with God. The tabernacle in the camp was blessedness. Being in the temple with God as He is there worshiping is blessedness. Proximity to God is blessedness. And the same thing is here. So Jesus is saying, listen, to, to this particular type of people belong the kingdom of heaven. If you're a disciple, even now, it should spark your interest. What, how do I get that? That's what I want. That's the ultimate good. And so Jesus describes those who have the kingdom in this really unique kind of odd way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's break that down. Poor here means having very little resources. Okay? It's literally the word for poor. But understand this, it's, it's the status of bankruptcy. So this is more than just having nothing in your bank account. I'm not sure what they had back then. But it's more than that. It's, it's having nothing in your bank account, but also having a great debt. Being poor here means you have no means within yourself to get ahead financially. None. You owed more than you had. There's no way you could work hard enough to get to the place to pay off that debt. It's utter bankruptcy. Utter destitution. Having nothing and owing a large amount as well. That's what this word poor means. Now you have this other word, spirit, that he's connecting to it. And spirit here is the seat of our emotional faculties, especially as it is disposed, disposed towards God. So what this is, is the spirit, who we are, our, our, our heart, as the Bible calls it sometimes, is the part of ourselves that, that defines our frame of mind towards God. So in our souls, in our hearts, in our spirits, what do we, what is our position before God? And so when you jam the two together, poor in spirit, here's what Jesus is saying. Excuse me. He's saying, a little tension there, let you wait for it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And, and why does the kingdom of heaven belong to them? Those who are bankrupt in their souls toward God. That's what this means. If you have no resources within yourself to approach God with anything. That's what poor in spirit means. So, as D Dallas Willard calls it, he said, it's people who have no wisp of religion in themselves. Think about the Pharisees in this time. What do they think? If I do this, and I do this, and I do this, in all the right way, then God owes me what? My salvation, honor, riches. And so here Jesus is saying, those who are poor in spirit, those who have 
nothing to offer God. And I hope truly that this truth falls on fresh ears this morning. This is a great truth. This is the foundational statement that's going to give us the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and its meaning. Only those who have nothing to offer God, nothing to offer God, and need God's help are in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of God. You might ask, Ransom, whatever happened to God helps those who help themselves? Well, the good news is nothing happened to that because it never existed. That's not how it works. We don't do enough good stuff and God says, all right, you're in. That's not how it works. God does not help those who help themselves because no one can help themselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We have a problem. You and I have a problem. And that problem is we operate under a false assumption. Even those of us who know Reformed theology and love God and follow Christ, we still have a problem. And that false assumption is that at some level we can salvage this thing. (laughs) My soul's got a little bit in there. It's not quite all the way broken. It's not quite all the way dead. And if I just live the right way, if I just pursue happiness, if I just find out who I am, If I just do such and such, and if I live a certain way with sincerity, we'll make it out of this hole that we're in. We can do it. Come on, ransom. It's false. I was thinking about bankruptcy, and uh, an interest sparked in my mind, so I looked up the 1929 stock market crash. Um, For the next 30 minutes, I'm going to describe in detail. Just kidding. But listen, here's what happened. If you're not familiar, there was this day in 1929, a Tuesday in October, and it was called Black Tuesday. And what happened was the stock market, after the roaring 20s, great gain in wealth, right? People were going crazy, getting rich, and, and, and things like that. And so there was one day where the stock market crashed so hard it started the Great Depression. It was a very terrible day. But what I learned was, so first of all, what caused it? High debt, high unemployment, declining agriculture basically had made all stocks basically worthless. So you may have been rich with all this this sort of, uh, I guess it would be analog back then, analog money, right? You think you have things, but because of the actual realities of the economy, that came crashing down. Now, it didn't just come crashing down in one day. I read that that starting the Thursday before, investors saw it going down. They're like, oh my goodness, this is not good. And so what investors do for the few days before Black Tuesday, they started buying up large blocks of stock trying to avoid this crash. But what had happened? The damage was already done. They couldn't do anything to stop the stock market from crashing. It was going to happen because of all the things that had been put in place before. Why do I bring that up? The damage in us is already done. There's nothing we can do. We can't adjust and jockey to save ourselves from our sin. When we are born, the damage is done. As soon as Adam decided, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to do what God told me not to do, and it's going to be better for me. As soon as he decided that, for every human being that ever had been born after that, the damage was already done. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves from it. And so the reality here, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is Jesus calling us to accept as truth? The fact that we are spiritually bankrupt. God doesn't owe us anything. And in fact, we owe him so much we could never pay the bill. This is poor in spirit. 
So being poor in spirit is not something we can become. You see this? This is not a list of laws or things that we have to become in order to be saved. No, being poor in spirit is something that we are. We are that, whether we accept it or not. And the kingdom of heaven is not something we earn. It is something that is given to us freely by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And so what is Jesus doing by starting his sermon this way? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's dismantling this idea that if I just do things right, all will be well. That was the message of the Pharisees. If you can do it like we do it, you're going to be great. And if not, gosh, sorry about that. Tough toodles. That's definitely what the Pharisees would have said. Really tough guys. He's destroying the idea that we, cannot, that we can earn God's favor. You see, we have nothing to give God. The illustration I was thinking of is, what if your TV broke and you went to Best Buy and they were like, hey, yeah, new TV, great. And you were like, uh, what do you got to pay for it? And you brought out your hand sanitizer and your rag to wipe your beard. And you were like, hey, new TV coming my way. They're going to be like, scram, that's not nearly enough. This is actually a good illustration. We have less than hand sanitizer and a rag to wipe your beard to give God. It's kind of like filthy rags, if you see what I'm saying. Um, we don't have the resources we need. We are bankrupt in our spirits. We have no spiritual resources. Now, at face value, this is terrible, terrible, terrible news. If you just look at that reality of the human soul, that is terrible news. If it weren't for the promise that bolsters up blessedness, and what is that? To those who know they are bankrupt spiritually, to them belong what? The kingdom of heaven. So to those who have nothing, to those who realize they have nothing, they already have everything in Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is sparking the interest of the disciples. This is the baseline truth of what it means to know and be with Jesus in relationship. Now this good news is amplified by the next three Beatitudes. So we look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I tried to fit that beatitude into the, the uh, tune of Alanis Morissette, Ironic, and it didn't work, so I'm not going to sing it. But this is ironic. This is ironic. So wait, blessed are those who mourn? Mourn means to grieve. So wait, there's a distinctive joy for, by following Christ for those who mourn and grieve? You see, being in the kingdom, being woken up by Christ and brought into his kingdom reveals your awfulness. It reveals your awfulness to you. It, it lets you know that you, you literally are the worst sinner you know. And what happens after that? You grieve that because you see your Savior. You see what he did. You see the grace he's had. And that causes you, as you see your, that you're poor in spirit, yet you're in the kingdom, it causes you to grieve, feeling grief and sorrow over your sinful condition. I was uh, looking up the five stages of grief, uh, just kind of uh, helping myself understand grieving a little bit better. And what's fascinating is I think if we take the idea of the reality of our sin, so follow me on this, we take this idea that we are utterly sinful, right? We are absolutely sinful. We don't have anything to offer God. And you plug it into the five stages of grief we can identify these responses throughout our, our world. So follow with me here. 
If you're wondering, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, right? Okay, good. All right. Our local psychologist helped me confirm. Okay. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Think about this. Denial, avoidance, and fear. We all know people who are like, nope, no sin here. We're just fine. We're just fine. I don't need that. Oh, no sin. That's a real reaction to the reality of our sin in our world. Anger, frustration. I see this one a lot. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you tell me there's something wrong with me? Bargaining, deal-making with God. Listen, God, listen. If I'm just good enough, we'll call it even. Does that sound right? Bargaining with God about our, the reality of our sin. Depression, this one's hard. This comes from knowing your sinfulness but not recognizing salvation. It, you become overwhelmed and hopeless. Welp, I might as well go whole hog on my sin because there's no point. There's no point. But when it says, blessed are those who mourn, I believe we fall into this fifth stage of accepting. It doesn't mean the bad thing goes away. It means that you are in that place and you have a new reality. So listen to this. Acceptance, grieving over our sin in the kingdom means saying, I am a sinner, but I have a new reality. Fully accepting the fact that you are, you are poor in spirit. You have no spiritual resources, but then moving ahead with God in this new reality. This new reality is only provided through the forgiveness provided to us through Jesus Christ. That's the new reality. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm with Jesus. Yes, I have no spiritual resources to offer God, but I'm with Jesus. And so as we accept in this way the, the reality, the, the, the harsh reality of our sinfulness, we can gain comfort because of our forgiveness. This comfort is guaranteed. Notice that in verse 3, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, present tense. Every beatitude after that until the very last one that we'll get to in a couple weeks uh, is future tense. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's guaranteed in the future. So, we can fully mourn our catastrophic sin problem. Why and how? Because our relationship with Jesus, in that relationship we find forgiveness and comfort. Now we are assured of it. And in the end of time, what will really, really happen? You will be declared over because of Jesus, not because of you, not guilty. And in that moment, we will receive the consolation of our sorrow and our distress over our sin. So that begs the question, what is comfort? So I think there's a now but not yet factor to this. There is comfort now knowing that we are forgiven for our sins. But we keep on sinning, right? That's, that, that's something that happens to us. We keep on sinning. And so we need to keep reminding ourselves, I am and will be forgiven. But the other comfort here, think about this. What's the other comfort? When we, we do sin, we're reminded of, of our, our poverty and our spirit, we can re be reminded that the kingdom is only for those who are broken sinners. That's a comfort to me. That's a comfort to me knowing that, yes, I'm a broken sinner, and the kingdom is only for those who find themselves in that category. So to be in the kingdom means you are forgiven and accepted by Christ, and that is earned by something that you don't do. It's earned by someone else, and it is guaranteed. I want to just touch on the idea, too, that mourning over our sin is certainly one aspect of the Christian life, but mourning over real hard things that happen every day is also a part of the Christian life. 
And so what is the comfort in that? It's not just that we're forgiven. It's in the comfort and the hope in the future that when Jesus Christ returns, what's He going to do? He's going to right every wrong. He's going to forgive and undo every sin. He's going to wipe away every tear. Where is our comfort now when things are hard and unbearable? It's there. It has to be there. It's only there. We're not guaranteed that this life will get easier or more comfortable. But we are told that at the end of time, when our Savior meets up with us and He redeems the world and His people are with Him, there will be no more trouble. That is true hope. That's real. That's a real promise. And there's comfort in that. I I like the the linear nature of these first four Beatitudes. Uh, And as we look at them, they really kind of feed the next. So what does understanding our sinfulness bring about? It brings about grieving of our sins. Grieving. And what does our grieving bring about? It brings about a very specific stance in our attitude. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness gets a bad rap, okay? Meekness gets a bad rap. Let me read read you the Merriam-Webster definition. Quiet, gentle, easily imposed, okay? That sounds, you know, we read meek, what do we actually read? Great, that's right, behind your mask, I know you said weak, right? When we read meek, we read weak, okay? For all I know, you've been amening the whole time, and it's just your mask, you're holding it back. So, um, uh, listen, we have to connect this word meek to context. Kingdom meekness is different than this other kind of meekness. Now, standalone meekness, if you are simply quiet, gentle, and easily imposed without context, I suppose that would be weak. But this is not that. There's context. It's connected. So think about this. It's connected to what? Our spiritual bankruptcy. We realize we have nothing to offer God. That that reality that we have nothing to offer God makes us sad. We grieve it. And that grief at its base level, what does it create in us? An attitude of humility. This goes back to the verse I quoted in our announcements. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. What's the only way we can do that? Is if we know our status before God. And as we know our status before God and we see that we are we have nothing to offer Him, and we are only saved by grace, and we grieve that sin, we are left to think of others as greater than ourselves. And so where does meekness come from? It comes from feeling the weight and guilt of bankruptcy. It comes from receiving the comfort and recognizing that your access to the kingdom is not because you're great. It's not because you've done something awesome. It is simply by the grace of God. We are in. We're in the circle. We're sitting with Him on the mountaintop. Not because we've done something special, but because He has done it for us. And that reality should create in us humility. The question then is, who is the greatest sinner you know? And the answer has to be you. (laughs) That's the litmus test. You ask yourself that question all the time. Who's the greatest sinner I know? And when Julie says ransom, she's probably right, but... We have, to, we have to keep asking ourselves that question until the answer is truly me. When we answer me, then we finally have plumbed the depths of our sin, maybe halfway. And we can begin to have humility. Now the promise connected to, to meekness here is almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. 
Blessed are the meek, for what? They shall inherit the earth. This is a facet of Christ's kingdom that makes no sense to our world. It makes no sense to them. Who inherits the earth according to our society? The strong, the powerful, the rich, the aggressive. Uh, Calvin says this. I thought this was excellent. We must howl like the wolves, he says about this passage, or else they know we're sheep and they will devour us. That's the world's ethic. We've got to be powerful and aggressive and strong and go get what's yours. And so here we have Jesus presenting the great reversal of his kingdom. What does he say to his disciples in Matthew 18? Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the disciples at times were obsessed with who's the greatest, who's going to be at the right and left, who's going to be the best, who's... and Jesus had to undo that. No, it's about humility. That's why I tell uh, our elders and deacons that are going through training here, you're not getting a promotion. This is not a promotion at church. It doesn't work that way. You're getting a demotion. You're getting a demotion. that As you grow greater in the kingdom, you serve more. You give more. Humility grows. So because of the generosity of another, it should beget this humble heart attitude. Now this linear kind of uh, thinking continues, and we get to the fourth beatitude this morning. And so the next reality of a disciple of Christ is listed here, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So follow me here. Uh, think about uh, hunger is a hard thing to kind of connect with in our minds here in America. It's not something we, we uh, encounter a whole lot, like desperate hunger. We have cravings for sure. Uh, so I was thinking maybe the last time you fasted, dial into how you felt about that first thing you ate after fasting. So, so think about that. Put yourself in that place. Uh, if you have no spiritual capital of your own, so we're thinking spiritually here, you have nothing to offer God. You cannot be right before God on your own. It's a, it's a reality, all right? And we see that, and we mourn it, and we can't do anything about it. I have no resources to undo my situation. Then we must, because we're empty of righteousness, have this innate hunger for it. You see? When we are with Christ, and we see that we have no righteousness, and we see who He is, we think, I want that. A great book. If you want to spend the next year really diving into the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book, one of my favorite books, um, uh, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. I think a link to it is on our website if you want to order that. Um, he says this, the desire for righteousness, the act of hungering and thirsting for it, means ultimately the desire to be free from sin in all of its forms and all of its manifestations. The desire to be free from self in all of its horrible manifestations. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long to be positively holy, to exemplify the Beatitudes in our daily life, to long to be like the New Testament man, a new person in Christ Jesus. That's hungering. It's a desperate hunger. I need to find a snack, right? I need it because I don't have it. And my body needs it. My soul needs it. The good news is, although we desperately need to eat, <laughs> we have this craving, we're not left without knowing where to meet our need. It says here, they, uh, excuse me, uh, lost it here, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. We know our need and our righteousness, the meal of our righteousness is provided for us. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? 
We look to the Old Testament. This was the same then as it is now. Psalm 42, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where is this psalmist going to find satisfaction? He thirsts. It's in God alone. In the same way, our righteousness is not earned or deserved that's a hard word to say apparently. It's not any of those things. It's given to those who hunger as a free gift of God through Jesus Christ alone. That's where our meal of righteousness comes from. In our hunger, we have no righteousness in here. We, we can't find it here. So we go out here and where are we fed? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone. How is it possible, the question might be asked, that that the righteousness of Jesus could be called my own. How is that possible? We go back again to the Old Testament, Genesis 15. Abraham just heard God make an outrageous promise. He's an elderly man with no children. I will make you as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. And it says here in Genesis 15, and Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as what? Righteousness. Abraham wasn't a good dude. <laughs> he wasn't great. He disobeyed and lied a lot, okay? But where did his righteousness come from? God, because of faith. The inaction of faith. And we fast forward to 2 Corinthians 5. And here we, we see our salvation described almost in slow motion. For our sake, listen to what happened. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin when He knew no sin, so that what? In Him, we might become the righteousness of of God. So, Christ revives our hearts. We come back to spiritual life. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize the greatness of our Savior. We mourn it. We grieve it. We humbly come before God and say, I need what you have. And what is the result? Big word alert, okay? Double imputation. It's so important. I know it's a big word. Double imputation, not amputation. Imputation, I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N. You can run back the tape later if you need the spelling again. Double imputation, the powerful action of Jesus Christ on the cross. What is it? Is, here's an easier way to understand it. The great exchange. Here's what happens. My sinfulness, ransom sinfulness, was taken from me. The thing I earned. What did I earn? Death. My sin. It's my stuff. I did that. It was taken from me and placed on Jesus Christ as if it was His. Was it? No. But it says here, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the first part of the great exchange. The first imputation. My sin taken away. My debt taken off of my shoulders and placed on Christ. And as Christ was punished for ransom Kent's sin, what happened? His perfect, holy righteousness was given to me. That's insanity. The great exchange. Church, this is our blessedness. It's already happened. It's already happened. So we look to God and say, God, why isn't my life more comfy? Why isn't my life better? Why, isn't, why aren't things easier? We have our blessedness already. Do you understand that the thing I just described is the gospel? It's the gospel. It's what the world needs most. What does our world need to find peace? That's a question that's been asked a lot. 
recently. What does our world need to find peace? You know what our world needs to find peace? I take this directly from Martin Lloyd-Jones. More individual Christians to recognize they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. And because they, they see that, they mourn. And because they mourn, they are humble and they come to God and they say, I want your righteousness. It's the only thing I need. And here's the reality. They will be filled up. You see, the kingdom of heaven establishes things the world can only promise but never deliver. The kingdom of heaven. It establishes things the world can only promise. Here it is. They don't have anything for you. Here's the Beatitudes of the world. Ready? Pursue happiness and you will find happiness. Serve yourself and you will be satisfied. Take your power back for yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or who you are and you will rule the world. You only need whatever is in you. You are enough. And I tell you what, by, by the grace of God, these are lies. They're lies. They're empty. They're not true. Where is blessedness? It's only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's only found there. Blessedness is the side effect of being in that place, serving and being near Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you and thank you and thank you for the great exchange. Me, a sinner, poor in spirit, I have literally nothing to offer you. And yet, in your grace, in your wisdom, and in your love, and in your courage, in your infinitude, you sent Jesus Christ. Perfect. Son of God, part of the Trinity, here in the flesh, to do what? Take on my wretched sin and give me his glorious righteousness. All for what? So I could be in the kingdom of heaven. You did that for me. There's no words to express the gratitude that I should have, the grief I should feel over my sin, the humility I should have with those around me because of who you are and what you've done for me, Ransom Kent. There's no way for me to describe it. I fail it every day. But that's what you expect. And you died for me anyway. I pray, Lord, that there are those who are listening, whether here or, or online, that have tried to believe the, the beatitudes of the world and they have not come true because they aren't. And I pray this morning they would hear your call, saying their name, calling them to yourself, I have the righteousness that you crave. I pray as we approach the Lord's Supper that this would be a meaningful time of nourishment for your disciples. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.